0: Well, the kids are making their way out. You can take your Bibles and open to Exodus chapter 20. If you're uh, using the Bible that's in the rack in front of you, that looks like this, you can find that on page 61. Page 61. The main focus of the reading will be verse 7. But just so we understand verse 7 kind of in the flow or the context, I'll be, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 17. We'll be reading verses 1 to 17. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. And I'd ask, uh, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourners within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that Yahweh your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not cover your neighbor's Wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's Word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Please be seated as we pray. Father, as we come to your Word this morning, we're aware that. We need the God of power, the God of strength, the God of might, to pour out His Spirit on us so we can hear and be changed, so we can hear with faith and be transformed, so that it's Your Word that's shaping us and not the many things of this world. We pray in Christ's name, amen. This morning's sermon is built with parents in mind, but... Consciously applicable to everybody. It has three points, three biblical parenting principles, and here they are. Number one, don't take God's name in vain. Don't take God's name in vain. Number two, pray in Jesus' name. Pray in Jesus' name. And three, Don't take the mark of the beast. Don't take the mark of the beast. Maybe not what you're expecting in a parenting sermon. Might be a bit by design, but I am sincere in saying that I think these are foundational parenting principles. And I hope that you'll be able to see that all three are actually tightly connected by the end of the sermon. So let's start with principle number one, don't take God's name in vain. I hope I'm not the only one who is concerned at how casually and flippantly God's name is used in virtually every sphere. Movies, shows, music, kids, adults, workplace, school, it's everywhere. And its pervasiveness, I think, is a symptom of a society that has lost its fear of God. But my parenting advice isn't primarily about avoiding Jesus' name as a cuss word. In fact, when we reduce the third commandment to merely being about not using God's name to cuss, we miss the heartbeat of it. So in order to rightly understand the third commandment, we need to understand two things. We need first to understand what is meant by the word name. And second, we need to understand what we mean by the word take. So let's think about name, God's name. In the the 1970s, the Gaithers made famous a worship song about how there's just something about that name, the name Jesus. And interestingly, the song doesn't tell us what it is about that name. There's just something. Similarly, today a popular song is making the rounds called What a Beautiful Name It Is. And again, the song isn't super obvious as to why the name is so beautiful or wonderful or powerful seems to be about how we're grateful for the work Jesus has done on our behalf and what that allows us to do. And that's why the name is beautiful or wonderful or powerful to us. But yesterday and today, it seems like we love to sing about Jesus' name. But is the name precious to me simply because I love him so much? Much like Karen's name is precious to me because I love her. No. It's not the sound of the name or the connotation of the name that makes it beautiful. My warm feelings about Jesus' name aren't what make it meaningful. Rather, and this is a critical point to understand for the entire sermon, in the Bible... A name is intricately tied to someone's reputation or their character. We can use name like this today. We'll say, he has a good name in town. Or don't ruin the family name. So let me show you just one place. It's all over Scripture, but where this is really clear. Look with me at Ezekiel chapter 36. If you're using the Bible in the rack, it's on page 724. Ezekiel 36, 7, 24. We're looking at verses 21 to 23. It says, But I had concern, Ezekiel 36, 21, but I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you've profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Do you see, he's not saying, hey, that 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 name out there, which is kind of pronounced like this, that's a really special thing, the sound of it. No, he's saying, it's about me. To clear my name is to clear my reputation. To show that my name is holy is to show that I am holy. You see, it's not a, about the connotation of a name. It's not about how the name, the sound of it makes me feel. The name is clearly synonymous with his reputation. It's tied to his character, to who he is. So we have to understand that name is rooted in identity and character. But what about the word take? What does it mean to take Yahweh's name? The Hebrew word for take, like the English word take, can mean all sorts of things. It can mean to pick something up, to speak it on our lips, to exalt something, or to become identified with it. So there are many ways you could take God's name in vain, including taking it on our lips flippantly. But interestingly, the words take and name are only used together in the Old Testament three other times, two of which are in Exodus in chapter 28. And there, the priest is to take the names of Israel upon himself as he goes into the Holy of Holies to represent the nation before God. In other words, to take the name... Is to identify with it. And to represent it. Perhaps an analogy of sorts. Is when a woman takes her husband's name. We're not saying she's using it as a cuss word. Hopefully. She's, She's doing that to be identified with him. To be linked with him. So when we take the name of God. We're saying we Belong to him and his character and his identity. We're taking that upon ourselves. So to to take the name of Yahweh in vain then. Is primarily about claiming to belong to him. And then living as though that's not true. It's about calling ourselves Christians after Christ but then living like the world. Let's apply that to parenting. Perhaps the most spiritually damaging thing we can do to our kids is to take God's name in vain because they will see it. We may be able to fool the world, but we won't be able to fool our children we put it we could be great at putting on that christian face outside the home everything's great but if it hasn't impacted our heart our kids will see right through it now this isn't a principle about being perfect part of taking the name of christ as the bible fleshes out is being someone who acknowledges that we're sinners And so we're quick to repent and then ask for forgiveness. While there will be growth and transformation fueled by the gospel and tangible growth that our children can see, we will still miss the mark. And when we do, we need to do what Christians do and take it to Jesus Christ. So you can take the name of Christ in vain when we act like we're perfect saints who never do anything wrong that disparages the name of Christ who died for us. Those who truly take the name of Christ will be ready repenters. I love this because it means our kids have plenty of first-hand knowledge of how to deal with their sin because they've seen how their imperfect moms and dads deal with their sin. We confess it, and then we repent of it. And then we allow God's Spirit to grow us to be more like Jesus. And this, this confessing, repenting, and then allowing Christ to transform us, this is the biblical identity of someone who takes the name of Christ. Christ. It's not showing off how inherently good we are. If you can only grow up to be as good as I am. It's not shoehorning the gospel as an excuse to never have to grow more like God. Well, I'm forgiven, so it doesn't matter how I live. Nor is it acting one way to the outside world so they respect us and then acting differently in private. No. It's sinners who, by the grace of Christ, are growing more and more like Jesus, repentant, forgiven, more like Christ. So let's not take the name of Christ in vain. I want to make one other observation about this commandment, and that is this. It comes in the first table of the law. I know you're all like, that's amazing. How do you see that? No, I don't know if you even heard of the two tables of the law. The Ten Commandments are divided into two parts. The first four commandments teach us how we're to relate to God. It's the first table of the law. And the second six teaches how we're to relate to each other. That's the second table of the law. Now, I don't know if you guys look in the bulletin at what's coming up and what we're going to be preaching on, but you might have saw it's Family Day weekend. It's the, the day we dedicate children. And I know from Exodus 20, is teaching on one of the Ten Commandments. Which one do you think I'm teaching on? Honor your father and mother, the fifth commandment, right? But I didn't. And that's because there's an intentional order to the Ten Commandments. Table one comes before table two. Because without table one, table two is hollow. Jesus will make this point later on when he comes comes to earth. So the parent-child relationship and how that's supposed to look is critical, and there is a commandment about it and much in the Bible about it. But before we parents try to get that one right, we have to make sure that we are rightly oriented to our God. And when we take God's name in vain, we undercut everything else we do as parents. We don't want to raise children who are great at whitewashing over the tombs that are inside them. So they look good for others, but inside are dying. We don't want to raise kids who've become really good at polishing the outside of the cup, making everything as clean and people-pleasing as possible. Sure, it might look nice. But because of what's going on inside, it's unfit for its true purpose. And So we need to be genuine in our faith. Forgiven because of what Jesus did for us. Restored to a relationship with the Father because of what Jesus did for us. Indwelt by His Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did for us. And so when we call ourselves Christians, when we're taking Yahweh's name, we are identifying with a holy God and a forgiving God. A God who takes sinners like us and makes us into a people who are zealous for good works. And when that happens, we grow more and more like Jesus right before our kids' eyes. We're the chief repenters growing in humility and meekness right before their eyes. So, from God's word, I plead with us as parents, and I plead with the church, do not take Yahweh's name in vain, for God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's the first principle. The second principle is this. Pray in Jesus' name. Pray in Jesus' name. I think of John 14, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He says it several times, but again in John 16, 23. In that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. I read those verses growing up, and for a long time in my Christian life, I thought that, Utilizing Jesus' name in prayer was kind of like a way to power up your prayer. I've got a bit of spending power if I uh, pray in my name, but the amount of spending power I have when I ask in Jesus' name, well, then it becomes unlimited. Gave my prayers power. I'm asking in Jesus' name, it gave my prayers efficacy. But again, we're helped here by remembering what name means in the Bible. It's not simply the sound of the name, it's not the mere utterance of it. Jesus, as your lips form it and your vocal cords say it. This is about who Jesus is, his values, his character, his concerns. To ask for something in Jesus' name is to ask as a representative of him. His concerns have become my concerns. His agenda has become my agenda. So I'm functioning as an ambassador of Christ, and that's that's when my prayers have efficacy. So... Just, just think about this. I, I could ask for something that's contrary to Jesus' name. Like, for example, I could be praying that he would make my name great. I want to be famous. I want to be liked. I want to have big influence, something like this, right? Promotion. And just because I tack on in Jesus' name when I ask for that doesn't mean now you'll get it. But then flip that a little bit. I ask for something in keeping with his name, like for him to make God's name great, I don't need to attack on in Jesus' name for it to suddenly become effective. What I'm trying to say is is in Jesus' name isn't some kind of quasi-magical incantation we can add to prayers to make them have... I'm going to give this prayer a double shot of espresso. In Jesus' name. No, it's about the values of our heart as reflected in prayer. So how does that apply to parenting? Well, first, we need to be much in prayer. I I think that's the parent's first and most important task for our children. Pray. 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 Labor in prayer. Intercede on their behalf. Bring their name to heaven's throne like the persistent widow. We need to keep on praying. The principle goes beyond just pray It's to pray in Jesus' name. So let's ask a question. What do we value most for our children? That they be well-behaved so they'll reflect well upon us? That they excel in academics or learn to play the piano or dominate in sports? Do we want our son to be a certain kind of manly man as opposed to those wimpy men you swore you'd never raise? Do we want our daughters to fit some certain mold of femininity, not like the girls in high school you look down upon? You want, just want that kind of household that when I come home, I can just relax and enjoy a bit of tranquility. I'm not sure any of those are priorities to Jesus. I think those types of values are more praying in my name than in Jesus' name. When we pray, we should be ambassadors for Jesus insofar as we're rightly repping His priorities, our prayers will be effectual. Now don't hear me wrong, I'm not calling for some sort of insincerity in our prayers. Well, if I, this isn't what's going on in my heart, but if I say the right thing, I'm not saying we can't lament, I'm not saying we don't share our heart with Him, because those are... Essential components of biblical prayer, especially as you flesh that out in the Psalms. But I'm saying that even as we do that, the more our hearts align with God's heart naturally, natively, the more our prayers will be effective. I'm saying that the more our values for our children are reflective of what God values for them, the more effective our prayers will be. So parents, the single most important thing we can do for our children, no matter how old they are, grandparents, great-grandparents, is to pray for them. And Jesus promises us, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. So let's pray in Jesus' name. As a second principle. The last principle is this. Don't take the mark of the beast. This is probably the one that raised the most eyebrows when I mentioned it at the beginning. Might have felt like this one doesn't quite belong with the others, but actually it's very much in the same vein as the other two points. So look with me at Revelation chapter 13. This is on page 1035, the very end of the Bible. 1035, Revelation 13. i want to read verses 16 to 18. Revelation 13, verses 16 to 18. It's talking about this beast that comes. It says, Revelation 13, 16, Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand, or the forehand, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. But the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it's the number of a man and its number is 666. There's a pretty famous part of the Bible. Even godless rock bands like this part. There's a lot of speculation about what this mark will be. This mark required in order to be able to buy and sell? Is it going to be some sort of chip implanted under our skin? Is it connected with credit cards in a cashless society? Will it be some worldwide currency that the beasts can manipulate? And I don't want to dismiss the basic idea that there may be some future way that Christians are marked and separated out from the general populace. Maybe something akin to how Hitler used the yellow star But if you read this passage carefully, you'll notice that it's more about names than computer chips. Listen again as I read it, and I'm going to read one verse further. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of, Of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, but one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, which is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. Whose name marks our foreheads? That's the real question. Is it the name of the beast or is it the name of the lamb? Now I want you to track with, you for, track with me for a minute. Back in Ezekiel chapter 9, there's this vision of God coming and destroying the wicked. But before he does, he has an angel who has something to mark people with. And this angel goes around and marks the forehead of anyone who groans alongside God at the wickedness of that day. Again, it's people whose values match God's, who care about what he cares about, who are marked on their forehead as his. Then fast forward to Revelation 3. You can turn there. It's just a few pages before Revelation 13. In Revelation 2 and 3, God's addressing seven different churches. He's evaluating how well they are standing firm for him in this really hostile and anti-Christ world. And he's exhorting them to overcome. He addresses the church in Philadelphia in verses 7 to 13. And... Look how he talks about those who conquer this world. Look with me at verse 12. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Those who conquer the sinful ways of this world, those who are able to stand firm amidst the hostility, what will happen to them? Like in Ezekiel 9, they'll have God's name written on them. And look at chapter 7 of Revelation, starting at verse 1. On their foreheads. Just like in Ezekiel 9. Before God brings judgment. He seals his own with a mark on their foreheads. Now bring that back to chapter 13 verse 16. Whatever we want to make of the number 666. We know it's tied to the name of the beast. It's tied to who the beast is. And while some are marked by his number and therefore embraced by the world, others are marked by the Lamb's name and are therefore ostracized by the world. Now whatever could be true about this in some future and fuller fulfillment, it clearly has present implications. It's about identity. Do we belong heart, soul, mind to the devil and the system of this world that he's over? Or are we sealed by God, belonging to him, heart, soul, and mind, standing with him amidst the great evil of our age, even at great cost to ourselves? So this is the crux of the matter. Whose name do we identify with? With whom are we aligned in our hearts and our minds? Whose team is emblazoned on our foreheads? We can make our kids go to church and pray before meals. We can wear a cross necklace and put a fish decal on our cars. You can do all that and still have your hearts and minds be far from God. Where what we value and prioritize is no different from what the world offers. Let me give us some examples. We can teach our kids, follow your heart, which is one of the main mantras of the beast. You could even use an out-of-context Bible verse to stamp approval on it. But we're marking our children's foreheads with 666. Can teach our kids love and esteem yourself. Again, one of the main mantras of the beast. You can justify it with Christian cliches, but we are marking their foreheads with six six six. We can sow into our kids a rebellious anti-authority lens with which to look at the world. Make yourself the ultimate authority, kid. And do so while claiming the name of Christ. But that is our world system, not God's. And so we're marking their foreheads with a 666. We can teach our kids to use their abilities and authority to advance their own interests. To puff themselves up. To get ahead. Instead of using them to love and serve others. Plenty who claim to be Christians do that, sadly. Sadly. But it's not the lamb's name that we're writing on their foreheads and wrists when we're doing that. I could go on, but I think you hear the thrust. We can't take the mark of the beast for ourselves, and we don't want to be instilling the mark of the beast in our homes. Biblical principle, biblical parenting principle number three: don't take the mark of the beast. Maybe you noticed that all the points were kind of the same. I said that at the beginning, but I wanted you to see how tightly connected they were. So are you seeing that? They all have a little bit of a different nuance, but they're all cut from the same cloth. Don't take God's name in vain. Well, you're taking God's name in vain if your heart and mind are marked by the beast instead of the Lamb's values. Pray in Jesus' name. Well, the content of our prayers will be a pretty indication of whether it's the beast values or the lambs that matter to us. See, all these things are about who we belong to, body and soul. All these are about the true nature of our heart and the true nature of our souls. Now, you could hear this sermon then as saying, here's a bunch of stuff to do, do, do. And there's a lot of exhortation in this sermon. But we're not going to be able to do these things if it's about our hearts just by trying hard because it involves a heart change from a rebel to a son, from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, from dead in our sin to alive in Christ, from 666 to the Lamb's name. And no amount of effort can manufacture that transformation. It only comes as a gift from God when we embrace what Jesus did for us, and when we do, He paid the price of our sins. He gives us a new heart, pours out His Spirit upon us. He restores us to the Father, and He gives us a new name. And from that change, which is only possible because of Jesus, we can be people, the kind of people God has called us to be, people who don't take God's name in vain, who pray in Jesus' name, and who don't take the mark of the beast. You pray with me? I think of an old refrain we said in one church, This we do, God helping us. This we do, God helping us. For those here who are in Christ, help us to do these things which are fueled not by our efforts, but by the new heart we have in Christ. And for any who are here who have not yet known the transformation from death to life, from rebel to sun, from darkness to light, I pray that the hope of the gospel would be theirs today. They'd run to Jesus. In Christ's name. Amen.